Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a great show for you guys today. We are going to start out with a couple of news articles and then go on to the main case for the day. We first covered off on the story about Daryl Knight way back in August of 2020, and that was the episode titled Ride to Nowhere, and it was episode number 93. But in a sad turn of events, Daryl Knight has passed away. There was a recent article about him, though. It was titled Left to Freeze by Canadian Police. Daryl Knight exposed their deadly starlight tours. And Leyland Ciso in Toronto wrote this one. On a freezing winter evening more than 20 years ago, Daryl Knight was picked up by police as he left a party in an apartment building in the Canadian city of Saskatoon. As they drove him to the edge of the city, Knight was drunk at the time and began to grow fearful. For years, he heard stories of so-called starlight tours in which the police abandoned indigenous people in the bitter cold. I thought I was dead, he said. All of those rumors I'd heard in the past, they were all coming true. I told them I'd freeze to death out here, guys. The driver said, that's your effing problem, and they drove away. On that evening in January 2000, the temperature hovered at around negative 25 degrees Celsius, or minus 13 degrees Fahrenheit. Knight was only wearing a light denim jacket and did not have any gloves or a hat. He managed to survive after finding a nearby power plant and pounding on a door in a desperate attempt to get help. He credited his survival to chance. He knew the location where he'd been dropped off and the only place where he could find safety. But a few days later, two other men, Rodney Nastus and Lawrence Wagner, were found frozen to death in the same area Knight had been dropped off. During a traffic stop, Knight decided to tell a veteran police officer about his experience. That conversation eventually led to an expose of one of the country's worst examples of racism in policing, straining the public's trust in the force and highlighting the deep mistrust Indigenous people had against the city's police. After Knight died earlier this month at age 56, the Cree man has become hailed as a selfless figure who exposed the brutality of the police force. University of Alabama professor Tasha Hubbard, who directed the documentary Two Worlds Colliding, said Knight's decision to come forward showed tremendous courage. He had a real empathy for men who had died, she told The Guardian. I think he felt that responsibility to speak up. Knight died on April 2nd, and a wake and funeral were recently held at the Saltu First Nation in, in Saskatchewan. The Providence continues to grapple with the reality of police violence against Indigenous people. Another man, age 40, was hospitalized in early April after he was tasered, pepper sprayed, and beaten with police batons during an arrest. His family is preparing to take him off life support, and the police watchdog is investigating. Knight's story shocked Saskatoon residents two decades ago, but confirmed what many Indigenous people have suspected or experienced. It prompted an investigation by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, police firings, criminal charges, and a public inquest. The intense public scrutiny also led investigators to revisit the case of Neil Stonechild, the 17-year-old Cree teen who was found dead in a field in the northeast outskirts of Saskatoon in 1990. Temperatures when he was last seen were close to minus 30 degrees. At the time, Saskatoon police initially investigated the death and determined there was no evidence of foul play, but his family has claimed the death was never properly investigated. 
a public inquest found the police conducted a superficial and totally inadequate investigation into the death of Stonechild, and the teen was last seen bloody and in a police vehicle, but investigators were unable to determine the exact circumstances that led to his death. Police initially suspected the allegations against officers involved in the Starlight Tours were isolated incidents. But in 2003, Saskatoon Police Chief Russell Sabo admitted there was a possibility that the force had driven other Indigenous people to the city limits and left them in the cold, including a woman in 1976, according to reporting for the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. Officers Stan Munson and Ken Hatchin, who abandoned Knight that January evening, were later found guilty of unlawful confinement. Both were fired and sentenced to six months in jail. They have given me a different perspective toward the police, Knight said in his victim impact statement. I have no trust whatsoever towards policemen. The Providence's Court of Appeal upheld the Hatchin and Munson convictions in 2003. In recent years, the police force has been accused of removing references to Starlight Tours on Wikipedia, according to reporting by the Star Phoenix. Police acknowledged to the newspaper that the entry had been deleted using a computer within the department, but said investigators could not determine who attempted to delete the entry. Despite multiple public inquiries into the practice, no Saskatoon police officer has been convicted for their role in the freezing deaths of any Indigenous men. Daryl Knight understood that he wasn't just speaking for himself when he came forward. There was a sense of responsibility for others, said Hubbard, and it's a real statement of the legacy of courage he's left us with. That is a really, really sad story indeed. And if you want to hear more details about that one, you can go check out that episode. It's episode 93, published in August 2020. Next thing I want to talk about today, man in China jailed for scaring 1,100 chickens to death. I thought this one was pretty interesting. Iris Jung wrote this article. A Chinese man identified as Gu has been sentenced to six months in prison after scaring over 1,100 of his neighbor's chickens to death. He reportedly snuck into his neighbor's chicken farm in Henyang County in the Hunan province using a flashlight to make his way into the adjacent property. However, the sudden light frightened the chickens, causing them to panic into a corner and trample over one another. A dispute between Gu and his neighbor, identified as Zong, began April 2022 after Zong cut down Gu's trees without asking for permission. Soon after, Gu made his way onto Zong's property at night with a flashlight, causing the death of 500 chickens. In the light of this initial feud, the police arrested Gu and ordered him to provide ordered him to provide monetary compensation of approximately $437. However, this failed to deter Gu, who once again trespassed into Zhang's chicken farm, causing the death of another 640 chickens. The court then ruled against Gu for the deaths of approximately 1,100 chickens, estimating the total loss at about $2,000. The court also said that Gu's actions intentionally caused the property loss. Gu was sentenced to six months in prison with one year probation. Wow, can you imagine? And then one final article before we hop into the main case. Family sues Airbnb after 19-month-old dies of fentanyl toxicity during Florida vacation. Marlene Langhang wrote this article. The family of a 19-month-old who died after being exposed to fentanyl allegedly at an Airbnb property in Florida is suing the vacation rental company after the toddler's death. 
Enora Levenier died August 7, 2021, while her family was staying at a rental in Wellington, Florida. During a visit from France, the family said in a wrongful death lawsuit filed in Palm Beach County Court. The toddler died of acute fentanyl toxicity, and the manor was ruled as accidental by the Palm Beach County Medical Examiner's Office. However, it was not clear how the child ingested the fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid that is 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine, or where it came from. The lawsuit alleges that while the Airbnb listing advertised the unit as a peaceful place to stay, it had a history of being used as a party house. Days before the French family arrived, according to the complaint, someone threw a party where drugs were consumed. Enora was exposed to fentanyl residue left in the rental, according to the suit, which accuses Airbnb, the rental property's owner, the property manager, and a prior guest of negligence in the child's death. Enora's mother booked the four-bedroom, two-bath lake house in the affluent residential neighborhood from August 6th to August 9th in 2021 for a family vacation for herself, her husband, and their five children. The family checked into the rental property on August 6th. Enora played and relaxed with her siblings and took a nap with her older sister on one of the beds of the home the following morning. More than an hour into the toddler's nap, Liddy Lavenier went to check on her and found her unresponsive and foaming at the mouth. This prompted cries and screams for help, according to the suit. The mother performed chest compressions on the child, and the family called 911. Honora was taken to the HCA Florida Palm West Hospital, where she was pronounced dead. Honora's father, Boris, recalled the terror of hearing his wife when she found their daughter unresponsive. Then I heard, Honora is dead, Honora is dead, he told NBC Nightly News. A medical examiner report found that Enora had a lethal level of fentanyl in her blood, a drug her parents said they had never heard of prior to her death. Overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids, including fentanyl, have taken a staggering toll on the U.S., with more than 56,000 people dying from overdoses in 2020, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The number of overdose deaths involving such drugs that year was more than 18 times the number of deaths in 2013. After months of investigation, it isn't clear where the fentanyl that killed Enora came from. There were no signs of any narcotic medications or any illegal narcotics at the crime scene, and her death was listed as accidental. Enora's case is now closed pending viable leads, according to the sheriff's office. The medical examiner investigation report says the parents tested negative for drugs, and Enora's formula also tested negative. In the sheriff's office report, investigators said a resident of the neighborhood reported there had been a large party at the scene two nights before the Lavenier family arrival. The report also says investigators were advised that there had been several parties and rentals prior to the family's stay at the location. The suit alleges that Airbnb failed to ensure the property was safe for the Lavenier family. Though Airbnb says parties and drugs are prohibited at their rentals, the company failed to issue a warning about risks and ensure spaces are properly sanitized, according to the lawsuit. In reality, the subject premises had a history of being used as a party house and had just days earlier hosted a group of approximately a dozen adults who used cocaine and other drugs, including but not limited to fentanyl throughout the home. The suit further alleges that Airbnb's cleaning procedures were inadequate to decontaminate a property and eliminate the risk from drugs or residue. Airbnb had a duty to take reasonable care of the safety of its guests 
and provide a rental free of drugs and residue left behind for previous guests and to provide sufficient warning of the risk of harm. An Airbnb spokesman offered condolences to Lenora's family in a brief statement that did not mention the suit. Our hearts go out to the Lavenier family and their loved ones for their devastating loss, says the spokesperson. The Lavenier family booking was the first time the property had been booked via Airbnb, but it had also been leased out on other rental sites. The complaint also accuses the rental owner, Ronald Portamelia, and its manager, Yulia Timpy, who controlled bookings, as well as a prior guest, Aaron Scott Kornhauser, who booked the space via Verbo Vacation Rentals of Negligence. The suit says before the family check-in, Kornhauser of Tampa was visiting Palm Beach County for a concert. He rented the property from July 30th to August 1st in 2021 for six adults. However, he ended up staying there with 11 other adults, according to the complaint. He brought or permitted others to bring illicit drugs, including cocaine, fentanyl, and marijuana. And these things were consumed throughout the premises, including bedrooms and on the kitchen counter. The Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office report indicates investigators interviewed Kornhauser, who said individuals in the residence used cocaine and marijuana, but not fentanyl. He told authorities he could not explain how fentanyl had gotten into the residence. In reply to the complaint, an attorney for Kornhauser said the negligence of the parents of the decedent was a sole contributing proximate cause of the alleged injuries and damages. The attorney claimed the damages in the complaint were caused by the negligence of other parties Kornhauser had no control over and cannot be liable for, including the co-defendants and anyone present in the property, such as cleaners and subsequent renters. An attorney for Court Amelia, the property owner, also cast blame on the parents, saying the negligence and careless conduct of the parents of the decedent was the sole and contributing proximate cause of the alleged damages. NBC News asked attorneys for Kornhauser and Verbo for comment, but did not hear back. Neither did the attorney for Cortamelia or the manager. Authorities tried to speak with previous renters and talk to neighbors, but were ultimately unable to determine how Honora ingested the fentanyl and where the drugs came from. Lavenier family attorney Thomas Scolaro said the family remains devastated in the wake of losing their daughter and hopes to draw attention to the dangers of fentanyl. Fentanyl is incredibly potent, so if you're only taking a couple of grains of salt-sized particles, this could result in a toxicity that could kill a 19-month-old baby. We're not surprised the sheriff's office did not find a vast reserve of fentanyl in the unit, Scalero added. But what we do know, based on the timeline and based on the statements from these prior renters, if there were drugs at that unit and the child was not exposed anywhere else... Period. There's literally no other conceivable place this child could have encountered fentanyl but in that rental home. Now we're going to jump to the main case for the day. Today we're going to talk about Sydney Loof. Now we've done a few cases on the show already about online dating and some of the hazards involved in that. But before we dive into this case, if you want to check out our May 12th, 2019 episode, it was episode number 13. Or you can also catch episode 26, posted July 21st, 2019, for more disastrous dating stories that ended horrifically. Now, on to Sydney's case. Sydney Loop was born 1993 as one of three kids. She had a brother and a sister as siblings, and they lived in Nebraska. Her childhood was pretty normal by all accounts. 
and she was known to have had scoliosis during growing up, which gave her a bit of a speed bump, but didn't really slow her down because she was warm, kind, and a generous and likable person. After graduating from high school, Sydney moved to Lincoln, Nebraska to start her adult life. She worked at Menards, which is kind of like a Lowe's or a Home Depot, kind of a hardware store type of a thing. And it took her a few months, but she eventually signed up for an account on Tinder so she could meet some people and start dating. It didn't take long for Sydney to pair with a similar female named Audrey. The two exchanged messages and had a date for the first time November 14th, 2017. According to friends and family, Sydney said she had a great time on her date and the two made plans to go out again the next night, which would have been November 15th, 2017. On the 15th, Sydney went to work as usual and then posted a picture of herself on social media saying she was ready for her date. Unfortunately, this was the last time anyone would hear or see Sydney Louf. The following morning, November 16th, Sydney failed to show up for work. She was usually very reliable, so this sort of thing was very unusual for her. What was even more concerning is that her family was unable to reach her either, and everyone quickly became concerned around Sydney. After two days of complete silence, Sydney's parents got into their car and anxiously drove to her apartment in Lincoln, Nebraska. The first sign that something was wrong was that Sydney's cat was left without food and water. The family knew that her cat was her baby and she would never leave the animal like this. Sydney's car was there and her apartment looked untouched, so it looked presumably as though Sydney had disappeared into thin air. Her parents then called the police and filed the necessary and filed the missing persons report. This led the police to interview Sydney's friends and family for any clues. Then they saw CC footage from November 15th that showed Sydney leaving her shift at Menards at her usual time. There was no other video footage of Sydney, but her friends started doing some investigative work and even created a fake profile to see if they could recognize and match with the same girl that Sydney had matched with because she had told her friends about it. One of Sydney's friends actually matched with the woman named Audrey and the two started a conversation. This friend slyly managed to get Audrey's phone number and pass it on to the police. Authorities then contacted Audrey knowing this was one of the last people to see Sydney. Audrey claims the two had had a couple of nice dates, they drove around, and they partook of a little cannabis before Audrey says she dropped Sydney off at one of her other friend's houses, and she claims she hadn't heard a peep from Sydney since. Suspicious from the jump, the police simply didn't have any other evidence against Audrey to go on, and Sydney's family continued to push for answers. Eventually, though, the police discovered Sydney's phone had pinged off a cell tower in a town on the outskirts of Lincoln. This allowed the police to better target their search efforts, and in the meantime, Sydney's friends continued searching, handing out flyers, creating billboards, and holding candlelight vigils for their friend. Days passed, and police continued their low-key investigation of Audrey, who turns out wasn't even using her real name. Her real name was actually Bailey Boswell, which doesn't really sound real to me either, but she grew up in Iowa and not unlike Sydney in that small town kind of a life, but this is where the two upbringings part ways dramatically. 
Bailey's father was murdered when she was a little girl. This kind of created a little bit of trauma in her life. But Bailey was an athlete. She was good at basketball, running, and she went to college on a basketball scholarship. She ended up, though, in an abusive relationship where she eventually got pregnant. And the child was ultimately taken away from the young and troubled couple. Reportedly, there was also substance abuse, violence, and neglect involved in this relationship, so it was probably better for that child to not be a part of that. Bailey ended up breaking out of her abusive relationship and put an ad out for a sugar daddy. She was looking for an older, wealthy man to take care of her bills and give her money. And we do have a story about that involving Mackenzie Luke. So if you want more information on that, go check that episode out. And I believe we referenced it at the beginning of the episode as well. In the end, Bailey located a man named Aubrey to take care of her. Evidently, Audrey slash Bailey had multiple fraud charges pending at this time and was allegedly trying to stay kind of on the down low. Audrey slash Bailey actually lived in the town where Sydney's phone last pinged off the cell phone tower. The authorities then sprung into action when they discovered the truth about Audrey slash Bailey. Police then got a warrant to search this woman's apartment and this Bailey was MIA when police arrived. But everything was squeaky clean and they suspected she'd been trying to cover something up. The biggest thing was they smelled bleach so strongly that the neighbors had been complaining about it. In addition to the strong odors of cleaning products, police found Viagra and sex toys. Which in itself is not suspicious, but given the circumstances around all of this seemed a little odd. Police were then actively looking for Bailey when this mysterious young woman posts a Facebook story claiming that she'd been on a couple of dates with Sydney, dropped her off at a new friend expecting to see her again. But what was really, really odd about this Facebook video was that her sugar daddy, 51-year-old Aubrey, was in the video as well. And he actually does a vast majority of the talking in this approximately 10-minute video. The video was an attempt by these two suspicious individuals to say that they were not involved in any way in Sydney's disappearance. But they claimed that they were forced to keep a low profile because police were spreading lies about them. Which, really? They claimed they had no involvement whatsoever in any foul play, and they go on this rant saying that they had been falsely accused and that they have been nothing but cooperative with the police in their search for Sydney Loof. Then they ended the video with an even more bizarre kind of a turn, basically saying F you to the police. So when the police start investigating these two individuals a little bit more closely, they find that Aubrey claimed to be an antique dealer who met Audrey slash Bailey through the site Backpage. And at the time, Backpage was used mostly for sex work, but Aubrey had a very long rap sheet as well as Audrey slash Bailey, and he had plenty of financial crimes. He wrote bad checks and he had some forgery and theft on his record as well. As a child, Aubrey had been abandoned by his biological mother and father, and this resulted in many years of foster care. Eventually, he found his way back to his mother, who had since remarried, but his new stepfather was not sympathetic, and Aubrey ended up being abused by this man. With this tough start, he ended up in juvenile detention quite often, starting at about the age of 17, and developing into an adult with convictions and parole. 
police were now frantically looking for Audrey slash Bailey and Aubrey, who were by now the main suspects in Sydney's disappearance, particularly given this Facebook video. They were eventually located in Branson, Missouri, November 30th, about two weeks after they took off following Sydney's disappearance. Fortunately for the police, these two were not super savvy, and they left clues to their whereabouts all over the place. Interestingly enough, the two had individual rap sheets as well as one where they committed crimes together. This made it even more imperative to get these two off the streets and prevent further criminal activity. As police began to dig, they discovered that Aubrey and Bailey used his antique business to stay off the radar and fund the recruitment of young women they claimed to be part of what they called their, quote, family. So essentially, Bailey was recruiting these young women with her Tinder account for sexual encounters with herself and Aubrey. Evidently, this Tinder account started by Audrey would convince these women, some of them that is, to be paid to have intercourse with Aubrey, saying that he was some sort of a vampire sugar daddy, and the women were referred to as witches. It was interesting though, the, this sort of uh, cult they had going on, the women involved in this had extensive and strict rules, including inability to interact with other men and regular check-ins with Aubrey. December 4th, 2017, Aubrey and Bailey were arrested and the two refused to give any information about the still missing Sydney Louf. Shortly after their arrest, police found Sydney's body in an area about an hour from Wilbur, Nebraska, along a gravel road. It had been cut up into multiple pieces and placed into garbage bags. These pieces were extremely decomposed, but it was still clear to the medical examiner that Sydney had died due to strangulation. Her death was then officially ruled a homicide. Aubrey and Bailey were confronted with the discovery of Sydney's dismembered body, and surprisingly, both of them opted to go to trial rather than practice the old adage that the first to squeal gets the deal. In other words, neither one of them would tell on the other one. They were tried separately, and both of them actually took the stand. Aubrey claims the death was an accident while the two were having consensual sex and doing some sort of bondage-type play. He claims he panicked then and dismembered her body to hide the evidence. Isn't that always what they say, right? Surveillance footage was introduced, which made it appear that this was well-planned as Aubrey and Bailey purchased things like cutting tools, cleaning supplies, drop cloths, and tarps. They also had purchased a meat grinder, which is just crazy, Evidently, that was not used in the commission of this crime, fortunately, right? Video also shows Aubrey going into the Menards Sydney worked at during her shift. She had no idea that this creep was actually watching her, and he actually purchased some tools on that trip that were used to cut up Sydney's body. Things were about to get even crazier, though, and at one point, Aubrey jumped up shouted that Bailey was innocent and tried to slash his own throat in the middle of the trial with a razor that he'd snuck into court. Chaos then ensued and Aubrey was removed to recover from his suicide attempt while the trial continued, despite his attempts to have a mistrial declared because that's presumably why he did that during his trial. In 2019, the jury convicted Aubrey of the murder of Sidney Louf. He was sentenced to death 
because of the depravity of his crimes. Not long after, Aubrey actually admitted that he killed Sidney because he was afraid she'd report him to the police for his fraud and sugar daddy activities. Bailey went to trial right after, and members of this little cult revealed that Bailey and Aubrey talked about killing frequently and the power that this would give them. They also talked about killing in the future. Some of the women indicated the two said they wanted to film victims as they tortured and killed them. Bailey claimed she was a pawn though, and she was afraid of Aubrey, and she basically did what she did out of fear of what Aubrey would do to her if she disobeyed him. But the jury didn't believe her and she was convicted of murder in 2020. She received a life sentence in prison. We're going to wrap the episode up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. We also post pictures on Instagram occasionally. We're at bfdpodcast. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!